title of this morning's sermon is Our Relationship to Money. Our Relationship to Money. On Sunday mornings, we've been in a series on contentment and covetousness. Last week, we began looking at one of the two main passages that discusses contentment. That's 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. We made it through verses 6 and 7, so we're at verse 8, but let's back up to verse 6 to briefly review. So if you look there with me, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Last week, we talked that this verse is not saying that godliness without contentment is possible, or in other words, it's not saying that perhaps godliness without contentment would be little gain, in contrast to godliness with contentment being great gain. And the reason Paul's not saying that is because if you have godly people who don't have contentment, then they basically look like ungodly people. Because godly people without contentment or discontent people are people who are regularly complaining or they're murmuring and, and groaning, and they've seen discontent in their lives, which communicates a discontentment with the Lord himself. And so that's why you can't have godliness without contentment, because a, a godly but uh, discontent person would look like an ungodly person. And so what's really being said here is that godliness with contentment is the wonderful combination that we should strive for, and that when we've been provided with that, it's kind of the combination that truly um, blesses an individual. And so don't read this verse and think, I am an ungodly person because I've been discontent. Everyone, with the exception of Jesus, has at different times in their lives been discontent. So this is not to communicate to us that we're these terrible people or unbelievers simply because we've been discontent at different times. Instead, we just want to read this, that if we have this combination in our lives, then it is a blessing to have both. Think of God himself saying, this is good for you to have these two together. If you want to have a full blessed life, pursue godliness with contentment. And then the obvious question is, how can I be content? What can I tell myself or what would be a regular reminder that would allow me to experience contentment, and Paul gives us the answer in verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. We talked about this extensively last week. It might look on the surface like it doesn't have that much to do with contentment, but Paul's point is this. If you recognize that this life is temporary, uh, you recognize that whatever you receive in this life will not be enjoyed for very long, then it really brings whatever you're coveting into focus, and it loses a considerable amount of value. And therefore, it's, it's easier to not covet because you recognize that whatever it is you're coveting is fairly insignificant in light of eternity. As we've talked a couple times before, covetousness destroys contentment. To, you know, we covet when we're discontent. We're content when we don't covet. And so if our contentment is ever threatened buy something that we covet, then we want to take our minds to this verse and just remember the temporary nature of this life, the temporary nature of anything it is that we might covet so that we no longer covet it and so that we can find contentment. And that's as far as we got last week, and it brings up an important question about contentment that we haven't addressed yet, which is very reasonable to ask, which is how much do I need to be content? If God expects me to be content, we can assume that there would be some amount that God would expect us to have to be content. And so the question we can ask ourselves is, do I have enough to be content? How much do I need to be content? And Paul answers this for us in verse 8. He says, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. The word for clothing, it's skeposmoth. 
skeposmos. It's the only place that it occurs in the New Testament. And it means to cover, which is why it's translated as clothing. But in some other translations, such as the NESB, it's translated as covering. And the word can refer to really anything that covers us, which would be clothing or shelter. And so the idea is, Paul is saying that we should be content if we have food and clothing, or you could say food, clothing, and shelter. And this brings us to lesson one on our bulletins. God expects us to be content with the essentials. God expects us to be content with the essentials. I think this verse introduces what you might say is some good news and some bad news, or some things that can be very encouraging to us, but some other things that might be somewhat discouraging or particularly challenging to us. So let's deal with the good news first. The good news is that if God says that we should be content with these essentials, then he expects that we should expect to receive them or to have them. Uh, If we don't have the essentials, then it's reasonable that we wouldn't be content. And so I guess it's if you're freezing and starving, then God's not going to expect you to be content in that moment, right? If you're freezing and starving, if you don't have food, clothing, and shelter, then it's reasonable to expect more. And so that's what's fairly encouraging. Uh, And we should ask ourselves this, can I be content with only food, clothing, and shelter? And this is where it becomes challenging. If the answer to that question, I mean, if you sincerely consider whether you can be content with food, clothing, and shelter, and the answer to that is no, then that would seem that repentance would be needed because that's God's expectation that with just this, with the essentials, we can be content. And so this is the challenging part for us, or even you could even say it's bad news for us as living in our very wealthy and affluent culture because as we talked about a few weeks ago, we experience considerably more than the rest of the world and the rest of history. And so the idea that we would be content with just the essentials, it can almost sound absurd to us. When we read here what God expects us to be content with, considering how much we have, how wealthy and how affluent we are, it seems very discouraging that, you know, we would be satisfied with just this. Because when we think about food, for example, what is our typical problem with food? Too much. What is our typical problem with clothing? Too much, too many pairs, trying to figure out what to wear each day. Our problem with shelter, buying houses we can't afford, introducing hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt into our lives. And so for us, a standard of living limited to the essentials seems hardly enough to be sufficient. I was reflecting on something that I hope can help us be content with less than we're used to, and it's considering that throughout most of history and throughout parts of the world even today, when people have food, clothing, and shelter, they felt very rich. They felt very wealthy. They did not have to try to be content with food, clothing, and shelter. To have those things was, in their estimation, a very wealthy lifestyle. Contentment would be very easy for those individuals who have those things. I want to share two related accounts from Scripture that I hope can help us be content. You remember when Abraham wanted his son Isaac to have a wife, and so he sends out his servant Eleazar to go find a wife for his son Isaac, and Eleazar wants to make sure that he doesn't mess this up. Abraham had given some instructions about 
who he wanted his son to marry, who he wanted his son to not marry. And so Eleazar goes out on this journey and to ensure that he finds the right wife for Isaac. Do you remember what he prayed? What did he pray? He said, let this woman, or I will know she's the one if what? If she waters the camels, then I'll know that she's the one. Let Isaac's future wife offer to water the camels. So Eliezer shows up, and then Genesis 24, 19. Rebekah said, I will draw water for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all of his camels, verse 22, until the camels had finished drinking. And so I thought, well, you know, how much do camels drink? We know they keep all this water in their humps, but exactly how much water is that? And I read that a thirsty camel can drink 30 to 40 gallons of water. 30 to 40 gallons of water. Do you know how many camels there were? There were 10. There were 10 camels, and she watered all of them. And so Isaac made a good decision when looking for a woman that would be this hardworking or this diligent that she would, or this much of a servant, any number of adjectives or descriptions you want to assign to Rebecca. And so if she had a bucket and that bucket held three gallons and she might have had to lower that bucket down into the wall, into the well and bring it back up. I don't know if it's cranking, a, you know, the handle there or pulling the rope or whatever she does. And then she's got to run this bucket over to the trough. Hopefully the trough isn't too far from the well. She's got to dump it out. She's got to run back to the well, lower the bucket back down, bring it back to the trough. She could have done that over a hundred times. She could have done that over a hundred times. Camels are Old Testament vehicles. And so that's what it was like for their tanks to be refilled. (laughs) What do we need to do to refill the tank on our vehicles? You pull up to the pump, you get out, and you put in your card, and then you stand there and you wait until the tank is filled. If you're in Oregon, you don't even get to get out of your vehicle. (laughs) I've always feel frustrated when I get my gas in Oregon because I want to stretch my legs and I can't even do it, you know, because someone comes up to the windshield and you got to hand them the credit card. And so you, we're actually so affluent, we can't even exercise as much as we'd like. That's how, how wealthy we are. It's almost pushed laziness on us. You have to stay in your vehicle. You can't even get out to fill the tank. Think about when Jesus met with a Samaritan woman at the well. John 4.10, Jesus said, If you knew who I am, you would have asked me for something to drink, and I would have given you living water. And the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So Jesus is speaking spiritually, and she thinks that he's speaking physically. And so he said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water from this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. And the woman said, and I wish you could kind of have a you know, uh, picture of what she looked like at this moment because I'm sure her eyes just opened very widely as she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw more water from this well. And so she didn't want to have to leave her home. I don't know how far this well was away from where she lived, walk all the way to the well by herself, lower the bucket all the way down, pull it back up and do this who knows how many times per day, how long does this one bucket last? I mean, how many buckets do you need just to be able to to bathe? And so 
the idea that she could get away with not having to come back to this well for water to drink was unbelievably attractive for us, or for her, excuse me. And I couldn't help contrasting, you know, what it's like for us. When we want water, it's as simple as walking to one of the many sinks in our house and just, you know, lifting the lever. And we are unbelievably blessed, and we just lose sight of it. We have so few problems, you know, our first world problems that we experience compared to what people experience in in other parts of the world and throughout most of history. Something interesting took place this past week in the LaPierre house that really related to what we're talking about here. You're, you know, as you're driving to church, you can kind of look over there on the side of of, uh, Buckeye or that intersection there and see the... um, some of the equipment there as they're working on the road and you see the little ropes that are around there. And so there's been some number, some amount of heavy equipment that's been there working on putting in these sidewalks and digging up parts of the road. And we've got like um, the window of our house looks right out to that. And so my kids have pretty much been glued to the window, just thrilled watching all of the, all of the equipment and the buckets go down and dig all this stuff up and do it so effortlessly. And, and they were, have really been enjoying it to the point where I think one day the kids went out and they're kind of standing there watching. And then Katie said that the, the men who were there working said, uh-oh, we better get to work. We've got some supervisors now. And so I, the kids have taken um, some pictures and some hot cocoa, written Bible verses on their, on their cups and stuff. And and so every, the point is, my kids have really been enjoying this. It's been going very well for them, watching all of this take place over there, right up until one specific moment. <clears throat> this gentleman walks to the front door, and he says, hey, we're going to have to turn off your water. And it's going to be off for about five hours. And you would have thought that we, like, missed the rapture and entered the tribulation. <laughs> We had children panicking. Suddenly, what had previously been this very wonderful and enjoyable experience in the LaPierre household became terrifying. You know, kids rushing around, filling up buckets and things like that. And, and one of the kids even looked up at Katie and said, this is so scary. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you know, we really, we really are very spoiled. I mean, I don't know if disasters would be handled a little bit better in your households, but in the Lafayette house, this is a very terrifying experience that we have been going through. I mean, you know, on par with entering the apocalypse, it seems. And so it just really put in perspective to me just how, how spoiled we are, just how, how fortunate we are, and how little we, uh, how much we take for granted, how much we have, and how much we lose sight of the difficulties and struggles that many people have to deal with. Now, if you've got a little bit of time on your hands... You can do something that's, I would say, both funny, but also very sad. You can go to the internet, and you can type in first world problems, and you'll see a countless number of memes of people experiencing first world problems. I copied down 13 of my favorites, and then Katie said that was too too many, so we looked through them, and I pulled out my six favorite third, third or first world problems. And so the meme looks like, the memes will look like this. There will be this terribly distraught person that's sitting there and they've got like their hand on their head and they're sobbing and they look like they just lost a loved one. And then it'll say this, the Wi-Fi is free, but it's too slow. I hate when my leather seats aren't heated. 
I don't know what shoes to wear. My groceries keep spoiling before I can eat them because I go out to restaurants too much. I can't handle all these different remote controls. And then my personal favorite, I want to make a first world problem meme, but I don't have any problems. And they're funny, but what? They're sad because of the amount of truth in them and that many of the things that we consider to be problems or difficulties would not even be on on the radar for many other people in less fortunate or, or less opulent places of the world. I read a story about a humble, modest man, and he watches his rich neighbor move in. And his rich neighbor is bringing with him all the expensive things that you would expect, the the number of things that he's been able to obtain, multiple televisions and then multiple computers, and he's got multiple vehicles, and then he's got multiple boats. And so this modest, humble man, he walks over to his rich neighbor, and he introduces himself, and he says to him, he says, friend, if you ever need anything, come and see me and I will tell you how to live without it. (laughs) And that illustrates contentment, because that is what contentment is. Contentment is learning what you can live without, or learning to live without certain things, or learning to be content means learning what we can go without. Truly rich people, truly rich people, hear me when I say this, are rich based on what they can live without. The richest people are those who can live without. If you can be content with the essentials, you're truly rich. If you look back at verse 8 one more time, God says, If we have food, clothing, and shelter, we should be content. And I look at this and I just think, considering how much more we have with this, or have than this, that it's practically laughable that that's all we would have, how much easier should it be for us to be content? God has given us a command here that if I was to preach in any other places in the world or or most places throughout history, it could be challenging. But nobody should have an easier time obeying what this verse commands because most of us have so much more than the minimum that is being expressed here now at this point it'd be easy to ask well what if i have more than this you you can start feeling bad about how much you have what if i have more than the essentials which i think is the case for pretty much all of us in this room do i need to feel bad about that or do i need to repent if this is what we should be content with down here and i have this much Do I need to be convicted about that? I want to show you something interesting. Go ahead and look down at verse 17 with me. Verse 17. As for the present, or as for the rich in this present age, 1 Timothy 6, 17, he says, as for the rich in this present age, or another way to say it is, as for those who what? Have considerably more than the essentials, right? As for the rich, or as for those who have considerably more food, clothing, shelter, in this present age. We're going to look at these verses probably next week. If you want to prepare for next week's sermon, you can read verses 17 through 19. But here's what I want to tell you about these verses right now. 
Paul is addressing rich people, and he doesn't rebuke them about their wealth. He has nothing to say that would condemn them. He does have some counsel for them, which we'll talk about. He does say some things that they need to keep in mind as wealthy people compared with poor people not having to keep these certain things in mind, but he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't criticize them. He doesn't demand their repentance. And the reason he doesn't brings us to lesson two. Lesson two, money is amoral. Lesson two, money is amoral. It is not immoral. It is also not moral. Money is amoral. And that's why Paul doesn't rebuke them. Money, like many things, is amoral or it's spiritually neutral. And what this means is having more or less money is not good or bad. Having more or less money or being rich or being poor is not moral or immoral. It is not righteous or sinful. Some of the wealthiest people might be some of the most generous. Some of the poorest people might be some of the stingiest or some of the greediest. Money itself can't be evil, not just because God gives some people money, but because God is the one who gives us the ability to make money. Let me say that one more time. Money itself can't be immoral or sinful, because, not just because God gives people money, but because he gives us the ability to make money. Deuteronomy 8.18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And so one thing I can say about this is if you have been able to acquire some amount of wealth, you need to recognize why you've been able to acquire it. You have been given the power to acquire it from God. He has been, it's a manifestation of his grace in your life. So you shouldn't be prideful. You you shouldn't think more highly of yourself as a result of that. Instead, you should be humbler because you should recognize that it was from the good hand of God that you find yourself in the situation that you're in. Because he's the one who's even, he's either given you the intellect, the skill, the ability, the fortunate circumstances that have allowed you to acquire this amount of wealth. It isn't something that you receive because you're better than others or because you're superior. It was, a, it was a, an extension of God's grace in your life. In a recent sermon, I mentioned a number of wealthy people in Scripture. You've got Abraham, you've got Job, you've got Solomon. In the New Testament, you've got Joseph of Arimathea. You've got the, the individuals in the early church who opened their homes to invite in some number of people. The fact that they had large homes in the ancient world just demonstrates the, the wealth that they had. And so you could look at those people and you could say, well, they're rich, they're wealthy, but maybe that's not God's plan for them. Maybe they were sinning or maybe they were compromising or maybe they acquired that wealth in some immoral ways. We know that there are Proverbs that talks about the sin associated with acquiring wealth wrongly, that there are sinful ways to acquire wealth. But if you take your mind there's at least two cases, I think, when, where we can tell that God is the one who made these people rich. Take your mind to Solomon for a moment. Solomon had at least three older brothers. He might have had more, but he had at least three. Which tells us that Solomon did not expect to be what? He didn't expect to be king. And then one day, his father, who happened to be the greatest king in Israel's history, comes to him and tells him that he's going to be king. So he learns of this. And then one night God visits Solomon in a dream, and he asks him, what do you want, Solomon? And so any number of things that Solomon could have requested, but he wisely or humbly requested that God would give him a discerning mind so that he might be able to rule the people well. 
And listen to what God said. Second Chronicles 1, 11, God told Solomon, because you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, you haven't even asked for a long life, but you've asked for wisdom and knowledge. Those will be granted to you. I will also, and get this, I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor such as none of the kings had who were before you and none after you have the like. And so is clearly God's will for Solomon to be rich. Genesis 13, 2. Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Now, it doesn't directly say that God is the one who gave all, these, all this wealth or all these possessions to Abraham, but I tend to think that's the case because Genesis 13 follows Genesis 12, which is when God made the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham. And part of that covenant was what? God said, I will do what with you, Abraham? I will bless you. I will bless you. And part of that blessing seemed to be the wealth or the possessions that God gave him. I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. Proverbs 10, 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. That's an important proverb because for many people, if they're honest with you, they will tell you that their riches have been a headache they will tell you the amount of problems that their wealth has caused them. I've considered in this little series looking at some verses in Ecclesiastes discussing the problems associated with wealth. But here's the thing to know. According to this verse, if your wealth is given to you by God, which is to say you acquired it in, an, in a biblical or God-honoring way, then God doesn't attach some amount of sorrow or pain with it. But if you acquire your wealth in some ungodly way, then there's going to be amount of trouble that accompanies it. Or this verse would say some amount of sorrow that's going to come with it. And so if God does make you rich, what does that mean for you? It means you have higher accountability. It means that God expects more of you. you all of us have to be good stewards. But if you're wealthy, your stewardship is more challenging simply because you have more to steward you have more to steward and the, the larger your stewardship is then the more difficult your stewardship is and for rich people they have a considerably larger stewardship than the person who has less dennis rainey said because you are stewards of the resources god has entrusted to you every financial decision you make is actually a spiritual decision for many that is a revolutionary concept how you manage your finances is a pretty good barometer for the condition of your spiritual life. And this brings us to lesson three. What we do with money is moral. What we do with money is moral. Money itself is amoral, but what we do with money is moral or it is spiritual. There are ways that we can spend or use our money that's very moral, very righteous, such as taking care of our families, giving to the church or to worthy causes, being generous, blessing others, and there are ways that we can spend or use our money that's very immoral or very sinful, such as we've been in a, talking about covetousness, to satisfy our covetousness. If you're ever to spend your money, even if it looks like you're spending it on something that is amoral, but you're spending it to satisfy your covetousness, then your money is being used in an immoral way because you're spending it to 
satisfy temptation and to give in and see sin produced in your life spending it on anything ungodly or immoral money like other possessions whether our homes whether our vehicles are our resources that god has given us to use for his glory and to see his kingdom furthered not to be used selfishly or or worse sinfully james moffat said a man's treatment of money is the most decisive test of his character how both how he makes it and how he spends it some of you might remember we had some good friends in california i say they were somewhat like mentors to us they visited here at least once maybe twice they shared during sunday school dave and nada gomes and nada had said something one time that really struck stuck with katie and i both she said if you want to know what someone's priorities are look at their checkbook and their calendar if you want to know what someone's priorities are look at their checkbook and their calendar because then you'll see what they do with what with their money and their time and if you see what people do how they spend each of those then you're going to see a considerable amount about each about each person and i'll just say we've kind of talked about this recently how short life is well one of the other things that should be produced in our lives when we recognize recognize how short life is is that we want to be good stewards of the time that god has given us i think some people will say well i'm not going to spend my time sinfully and maybe they're not doing immoral evil things with their time but they're just wasting their time they're, they don't seem to have any concern whatsoever for the lord's kingdom they don't seem to wake up wondering how can i serve the lord today they just wake up thinking how can i serve myself and they're not necessarily going out committing adultery robbing people doing things that look to us to be terribly evil but i'll tell you something keep this in mind please keep this in mind in the parable of the talents the third servant was wicked because of what he didn't do does that make sense he wasn't wicked because he committed adultery and stole he was wicked because of his laziness because of what he didn't do for the lord and there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be very shocked on the day of judgment when they stand before the lord and realize how seriously he took the fact that they did almost nothing for him that they woke up and gave no thought to him every day do you want to hear those words wicked and lazy it's not like we're saved by our works but i will say this we're definitely not saved by our works don't hear that from me but i will say this if you can wake up and you can live your life and you can give no thought to the lord you need to consider whether you are saved because if you've been redeemed and you've been purchased by christ and you can live your life giving no thought to that do you really think you're a christian do you really think you've been bought and purchased because the person who's been purchased knows that their life belongs to the lord and all of the time that god gives them that means every second is not yours it belongs to god to be used for him and there are too many people who do not recognize that and they're not going to be dead but a few seconds before they realize that they wasted their lives so this isn't just about money it is also about time how that's being spent what we're doing with every moment every day every hour every minute that god has blessed us with sometimes people hear a sermon about something like this 
and they'll say well you're just preaching on money because you're a church and churches just want your money so i'll tell you this right now i'm not going to talk to you about giving to the church i'm not going to push you and i think you should be able to tell that we don't push giving because we don't even take an offering here we leave that between you and the lord so whatever accusations he might bring against our church you can't say that we push money too much second some people will say well shouldn't you be talking about something that's more spiritual shouldn't you be pre i mean you're preaching on money but shouldn't you be preaching on prayer or forgiveness or love or jesus that would be spiritual and the problem with this view is that money or what we do with it is very spiritual the bible has a lot and you say well how do i know that i know that because the bible has a lot to say about money and what we do with it our lord himself said more about money than almost anything else and that alone means it is a very important topic to christ for him to preach on it that much and the other thing that's interesting is since the bible says a lot about money and since the bible is about jesus our finances say a lot about jesus or our finances at least say a lot about our relationships with jesus so it is a very spiritual thing to discuss finances now interestingly there are two groups in this passage we just briefly looked at one of the groups which we'll look at in more detail uh, next week probably which is verse 17 those who are rich in this present age that's the second group the first group is in verse 9 look at the first group so there's two groups the first group is the rich in the present age look at verse 9 to see the first group those who desire to be rich fall into temptation those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction so do you see what paul does in this chapter do you see the two groups verse 17 is about the rich and i said that paul doesn't condemn them verse 9 is about the other group those who desire to be rich and he has very strong words for this group and this is interesting it practically looks like it's backward it practically looks like it's backward that god doesn't have or that paul doesn't have strong words for the rich because that's who we might expect him to perhaps condemn or rebuke or criticize but he does have very strong words for who those who desire to be rich we'd almost expect those who desire to be rich for god to pity or feel bad for them because they don't have as much i mean that's kind of our government we need to take from those who have more we need to redistribute wealth people who are rich or bad we need to take what they have and we need to give to those who have less that sort of socialist agenda and the bible is the exact opposite of that paul's strong words are not for the rich paul's strong words are for those who desire to be rich and it's this way because being rich is not the problem the problem is desiring to be rich the greek word for desire it's bulimai and it means to will deliberately the word for desire means to will deliberately it has the idea of choosing or deciding something and in this case this is individuals who are choosing or who are deciding to be rich 
And it's reinforced in verse 10 when Paul says that, look in verse 10 at the beginning of it, it says they have a love for money or for the love of money. Listen to the way these two verses are um, shared in the Amplified. Verse 9, those who crave to get rich with a compulsive, greedy, longing for wealth. And then verse 10, the love of money, that is the greedy desire for it and the willingness to gain it unethically. So we're not, we're not talking in verses 9 and 10 about people who would say, oh, I bet it would be nice to be rich, because m- most people would say that. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that. That's not who's in view. Verses 9 and 10 have in view people who obsess over being rich, who covet it, who crave it more than anything else in life, so that money has this very tight, iron grip on their heart and that is what is sinful and this brings us to lesson four the way we feel about money is moral the way we feel about money is moral there's some people we've been having a wonderful blessed time during the conquer series and you recognize there are some people and they are gripped that it is an addiction for them they're controlled by the things that they look at there are other people can be controlled by anger can be controlled by bitterness can be controlled by unforgiveness and there are plenty of people and they are as controlled by money money has as tight of a grip on them as the as drugs have on the strongest addict or alcohol has on the strongest drunk money itself is amoral but the way we feel about it is completely moral money itself is not the problem the love of money is the problem so here's what's interesting the desire to be rich or the love for money is far more dangerous than any amount of money itself plenty of other verses warn about loving money luke 16 14 criticizes the pharisees for being lovers of money first timothy 3 3 says one of the qualifications for elders is they don't love money second timothy 3 2 says one of the behaviors characterizing the wickedness of the last days will be love for money hebrews 13 5 which we looked at a couple weeks ago commands us to keep our lives free from the love of money and so it's a strong theme in scripture that god wants us to make sure that we get and what's interesting about this is if you were to be sitting here and you were to be poor your mind might think this has nothing to do with me but what's interesting is this is a struggle that is independent of people's financial situation and what i mean by that is this is a struggle that people can have whether they're rich or whether they're poor we think oh well the the oh poor people or we we might think oh rich people love money they clearly love money because they have so much and that's a possibility rich people can struggle with this because they simply want more riches but poor people can struggle with this too they can crave or covet money as much as the richest person and the richest person can crave or covet money as much as the poor person might so it's completely independent of how much money you have in your life and here's what's interesting about these verses we know i mean we talked about earlier in the sermon but i think all of us know this anyway or or before that that what we do with our money is important how we spend our money is important it is it is moral 
in nature because our money isn't really our money it's a stewardship it is it belongs to god he allows us to steward it expects us to be uh, uh, use it in a way that honors him but that's not what's in view in these verses that is not what these verses are about these verses are about how we feel about money what our attitude is toward money what our relationship to it looks like and so what we want to ask ourselves is this if we want to take these verses seriously we want to apply them to our lives we want to be not just hearers but doers of the word this is what we need to ask ourselves do i love money do i covet it do i crave it am i obsessed with it do i dream about it do i think about it constantly and if the answer to that question is yes then it would seem there should be some repentance in your life because it would seem that you're committing the sin that paul is warning against here which is loving money the beginning of verse 10 probably contains the most famous statement in the world about money you can have people they never cracked a bible in their lives and they can probably pretty loosely quote the beginning of verse 10 where it says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils but often when people quote this they mess it up one of two ways and let's briefly talk about each of the mistakes people make so that we have a right view of this verse sometimes you hear people say this they'll say money is the root of all evil money is the root of all evil that's not what the verse is saying and we know that that's not true because we just talked about money itself being amoral one reason that we don't want to think money is evil is we're putting the blame in the wrong place does that make sense if you think money is evil you're blaming something that's amoral when you should be putting the blame elsewhere we should be blaming our relationship to it the other thing you'll hear is the love of money is the root of all evil and that's also not what that's also not what the the verse is saying because we should know or recognize that there's plenty of evil in the world that has nothing to do with money the ver- the love of money is the root of all evil it's that quote probably comes from the king james that's how the king james translates this verse but it should say something closer to the love of money is the root of all kinds or of many different evils and the change is small but it's significant because we don't want to think that every single evil in the world is a result or has some relationship to money there's plenty of evil that has nothing to do with money where did jesus say that the evil in this world comes from he said our hearts matthew 15 19 out of the heart come evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality theft false witness and slander where did james say the evil or sin comes from he says that it comes from us from our sinful flesh james 1 14 each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death so we wouldn't say that evil is birthed from money but we would say based on this verse the evil is birthed from us giving into the flesh or giving into our uh, giving into temptation so to be clear money is not the root of all evils the love of money is not the root of all evils but here's the right balance the love of money is the root of many evils and this brings us to lesson five the love of money is the root of many evils lesson five loving money causes many evils lesson five loving money does cause many evils 
We'll talk about verses 9 and 10 in a little more detail next week, which is why I said we might not get to verse 17. So we're just kind of getting an overview of verses 9 and 10. We will dig into them and strive to unpack them next week. But just to sort of preview them, you can't help, I mean, you can't miss that verses 9 and 10 are discussing the many evils that are produced when people love money. Because once the love of money has taken root in people's hearts, rare is the evil or the sin that they will not commit to get it. And so it's easy to wonder, you know, is desiring to be rich really that bad? I think in our minds, lying seems bad, cheating, adultery, theft. We probably don't think that loving money is really that evil. But look with me at verses 9 and 10. Let's just read through them. But those who desire to be rich, they fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so I look at this and I think, could this sound any worse for the person who loves money? I mean, you've got to look at this verse and say, I do not want a hint of the love of money in my life because of what I can see here that it is going to produce. People who desire to be rich, people who have a love of money are susceptible to these things discussed in verses 9 and 10, and it just looks terrible. It's almost like God is going the extra mile just to communicate to us how bad it is to have this craving or this covetousness in our life. It's like a list of the worst things that can happen to people, and it all comes from loving money. I want to connect this to the previous verses so you can see the relationship that this has to contentment. As soon as we decide, I mean, we've been looking at this, this is our second week, and if we just kind of take our minds back to the beginning, as soon as we decide that we are not going to be content with the essentials, or we're not going to be content with food, clothing, and shelter. It's important to recognize we are stepping onto a slippery slope. We are opening ourselves up to an amount of covetousness that can lead to many evils and sins in our lives. When we have, when we decide that we're not content with food, clothing, and shelter, we're starting down a slippery slope that can lead to a desire to be rich, as verse 9 says, a love for money, as verse 10 says, And so, well, what are we going to put off as we continue talking about this? What are we going to put on? If we're going to put off loving money, then this is what I would say. Put on a love for Christ. Put on a love of Christ. If you find yourself loving money too much and you want to repent and you want that out of your life, put on a love for Christ. To love, and the reason I say that is because kind of like when Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well, that was really a a passage about covetousness in a sense she wanted to not have to come out and get this physical water and jesus says to her i can satisfy you i can give you the the contentment that you desire i can satisfy your spiritual thirst that's really what's in view there and so when i tell you to put off love of money and put on love of christ i tell you that because that's where true riches are found That's where the true spiritual riches that can allow contentment in a person's life can be gained. 
to love Christ is to find those riches that allow for contentment. Colossians 1.27, God chose to make known how great the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Ephesians 3.8, this was given to me to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so the desire to be rich, the love for money can only be satisfied with spiritual riches, not physical riches, and those spiritual riches can only be found in Christ. Father, we thank you that Jesus satisfies our spiritual hunger and thirst. We thank you that the riches we desire, sometimes we think they're physical when we're blind to the reality of our hearts, are truly spiritual riches. And so those are the ones that we want, and we know they can only be found through a relationship with Christ. So help us to put off a love for money, put off any, a love for anything physical, and put on the love for Christ. And in him we would find the contentment, the satisfaction, the sufficiency that we so strongly desire, Lord. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.